0: It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with BaseballHQ.com co-GM and Speculator Columnist Ray Murphy next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left-center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron.
1: The fire. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from baseballhq.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, June the 10th. It's show number 41 of the 2014 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy about daily league strategy, tactics, and tools, a Baseball HQ research report on the significance of first pitch strikes for pitchers, buy high players, and studs and duds for the rest of the season. We'll also have a commentary from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's our Metric Minute, and analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about power index for hitters. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout Edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? we got to talk some baseball. And we open our Tuesday Tout Edition, as always, with our feature expert interview. It's BaseballHQ.com co-GM and Speculator Columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball
1: HQ Radio. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Always a pleasure.
0: Ray, you know I always like to start off our Tuesday Tout shows by asking our expert guests how they're doing with their various fantasy teams. I'm mostly interested in expert leagues and in NFBC. I know you've been very successful in NFBC in the past, so how are your teams doing?
1: Well, you know, for anybody who's got a portfolio of teams, this answer is probably... The common one but it's a mixed bag a couple of good ones and a couple of teams that have some work to do uh among my expert teams i'm in both labor and tout mixed and my labor team is in second today in the 15 team format i'm chasing fred zinke of mlb.com i've been first or second for the last uh better part of a month now uh the tout wars team is a lot worse off that's sitting in 12th or 13th a bunch of things haven't gone right there over on the NFBC side, sort of a similar situation. My main event team is struggling. I uh, have had a bunch of problems there, but I have one of the 50-round draft and ho- draft and hold format teams that I'm actually leading that league now. So, you know, some good, some bad. And, you know, it's certainly early enough in the season still that I'm still grinding away at all of those and working as hard to turn around the strugglers as I am to finish the deal with the uh, the current strong teams. But... There's uh, work to be done in all formats.
0: When you have as many teams as you're operating, at what point do you say, you know what, I need to devote as much time as I can to the successful ones and start letting the uh, also-ran slide?
1: I try and never let that happen, really. But you know, a lot of it, to me, depends on what the problems are with the particular team and whether they're solvable you know I'll grind away at a team that has a you know a bad starting pitching staff for instance all summer long just swapping out guys all year long and trying to find the right mix and you know once you do that research it's often applicable to a bunch of teams so it's not all that taxing or it's not time lost or anything like that but for instance, I had a team, I guess, was in labor last year where the offense just wasn't there and there was nothing I could do to generate enough offense with the team. I was lasting batting average, last in home yeah. runs, and there just isn't anything on the waiver wire to improve that with. So you're really at a point where it's not even a question of time. It's a question of I can do all the research until I'm blue in the face and there are going to be no answers to the problems I have. So, you know, to me, a lot of it is about, you know, how solvable the problems are on, a, on any roster.
0: It's an interesting point because uh, being realistic requires you to look at how you're doing in the categories, assuming you're playing a rotisserie style format with categories. If you're okay in home runs and RBIs and bad batting average, you can sometimes address that issue by maybe swapping in an Adam Dunn if you're in a trading league or a guy like that, a big power Mark Reynolds type guy with a poor average, and dig into the free agent pool and try to find yourself a decent batting average guy to shore up that one spot, addition by subtraction by losing the bad guy and then uh, picking up some extra benefit from picking up a good guy. But if you're doing poorly in homers, RBIs, and batting average, you're really kind of stuck
1: yeah, you really are. And in fact, by uh, Tout Wars mixed league team, I sort of just addressed this problem a couple of weeks ago. I Mostly you know, with a bunch of underperforming hitters and some guys on the DL, I was having exactly the problem you're talking about where my offensive numbers were really starting to lag to a point where they weren't going to be recoverable. So I turned around and traded uh, my Felix Hernandez for Giancarlo Stanton just to try to stabilize those hitting categories and try to stop that slide that I was talking about. Now, obviously, losing Felix blows a huge hole in my pitching rotation, but that's a problem that I feel like I at least have a chance of being able to solve over the course of the summer, probably not with one pickup, but by by grinding through a bunch of waiver wire guys and maybe getting a facsimile of... contributions that might equate to something like what I would have gotten from Felix while plugging Stanton into the big hole on the other side of the lineup card, so to speak. It's, you know, part of it is just moving deck chairs around on what may be a sinking ship, but I sort of move the problem from one side of the ledger to the other.
0: And as a general rule, I'd really recommend doing that because, especially in a relatively shallow league like a 15 or 12 team mix, which is more and more common these days, it's just easier to find pitchers to, to patch and fill and and add and drop all, all the way through the year than it is to find a Giancarlo Stanton. Those guys are rare. But as you say, if you play your cards right. And I'll throw in a plug here for the Baseball HQ uh, starting pitcher matchups tool. Um, In the last three or four weeks, I've played that tool really uh, extensively. And I even got like two or three wins and a 320 ERA out of Ricky Nolasco just by playing those those solid matchups because he was up against teams that he figured to do well against. And he did well. And I picked up some points in that area. And that's something I just can't do when I'm looking in the free agent pool for, you know, a a Miguel Cabrera, you know.
1: Yeah, Miguel Cabrera is not in the free agent pool. And especially in the mixed league formats, like you say, the problem is the counting stats on the on the offense side just accumulate so quickly that once the hole gets established it gets really really hard to work that hole off if you're playing in a 12 team AL only or NL only league you can move the needle by finding more playing time you might find a guy on a waiver wire in a particular week who was just called up or just off the DL or just got a job or whatever and you can start to lap the field by accumulating more at bats week over week than your competitors that's not an edge you can claim in a mixed league and as a result you've got to beat your mixed League, you've got to dig out of a hole in mixed leagues only based on performance not based on playing time and that's really really difficult
0: ray when you're working in uh, the experts leagues that allows trading but in the nfbc you're not allowed to make trades are there any other differences between playing nfbc and a regular home league and i'll throw in expert leagues as well there's say there's three categories of leagues what is the big difference between one and the other and the third
1: well, there's an example of that from my NFBC league that I think might be relevant here as as one answer to your question. In that you're playing for sort of two separate prize pools. You're playing for your league prize, and you're playing for that you know hundred thousand dollar payday for the overall prize or the you know top twenty slots or whatever it is that get paid out in the overall competition. In my particular league this year, like I said, I'm running toward the back of the pack and you know trying to stop the leaking on the ship, but. It's uh, going to be an uphill battle all summer long. But in my particular league, Bill Macy, who used to write for Baseball HQ, is in my league and is the league leader at this point. And he went and spent 40% of his fab, $400 out of 1000 this past weekend on Jonathan Singleton. He's already leading the league, and sure, he can use some help at first base. But I haven't talked to Bill about this, but my suspicion is that already leading the league, he was still chasing Singleton as much with an eye on overall prizes as he was with an eye on the league prize. That's not to say that here in June, he's got the league sewn up or anything far from it, but you know, when a guy like Singleton comes into the player pool, that's sort of a high variance event. You know, Singleton might be very good. He might not be, but Bill had the most fab available in the league and didn't know how many more guys like Singleton who have that potential high payoff were going to arrive. So he took the shot at it. And to me, Like I said, I'm speaking for him, but my suspicion is that he took that shot as much with an eye on overall prize payouts as he did with the week.
0: Yeah, the overall payout for the NFBC main event championship is a big incentive to play the game a certain way, and uh, I wonder, and this just popped into my head, Ray, so excuse me, but... Is there an opportunity in F- NFBC, do you think, to uh, arbitrage the difference between most of the guys in your league are playing for the big prize as well as for the league prize? And we know that to get the big prize, you have to have a very balanced team. Could you win your, your league and just uh, just decide not to go for the big prize and win your league with an unbalanced sort of approach?
1: Yeah, I think you can. It, I haven't seen anybody do it in my particular leagues in the last few years, but in the early days of the NFBC, there was an opportunity to do that. And the, the easiest way to do it was to punt saves. And if you chose not to chase relievers and instead went with an all-starting pitching strategy, you would dominate wins and strikeouts. And if you could you know, use HQ approaches or sound... You know, an- analytics to target pitchers with good skills. You could manage an ERA and WHIP that were tolerable while maxing out wins and strikeouts, and lead you to a strong pitching finish, but not good enough to compete in an overall competition because you're taking that zero points and saves. But the down da- the only downside to that is the the, the economics of the NFBC entry fee. As measured against the league prize, once you subtract out any possibility of winning anything out of the overall prize pool, start to break down pretty quickly because you're paying, you know, I think it's twenty percent, you know, just to the NFPC for, you know, administration fees and their hosting expenses and that sort of thing. And then when you take out of the league on top of that twenty percent, the percentage of the prize of the entry fees in the league that are getting. Pushed upward into that overall prize pool, you know the the economics of the league prize versus the entry fee, even at an improved odds of winning, as you suggest with an unconventional strategy, start to make a little less sense economically. So that's the downside, but it can be done.
0: What does it cost to play, and what do you win at the league level?
1: So at the league level, the entry fee is uh, I think it's sixteen hundred dollars now, and the league prize is I think sixty five hundred. So you're looking at you know something like four to one.
0: Well, that's that's not so bad, uh, you know, because when you when you approach the NFBC, you have to kind of think you don't have a chance at winning the overall prize because it seems like with that many people in the pool that luck is going to play a pretty significant role in in who wins it. Doesn't get injuries, gets a Charlie Blackman at the start, something along those lines. And because of the sheer volume of players, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to win.
1: Yeah, sure it is. Absolutely.
0: So if it was me, I don't play those leagues, uh, but if it was me, I think I might try to, I wouldn't mind cashing in $6,400 every time I played or $3,200 or whatever, finished top three or top four. We're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, the uh, Speculator columnist and the co-general manager of the site. And Ray, I've been asking our Tuesday Tout experts about daily leagues, and I'm interested in your take. First, how often do you play?
1: I've been playing quite a bit this year for a number of reasons. Uh, I, I played a little less formally last year. Uh, Baseball HQ was running a promotion with Draft Street where you know, we were sponsoring free events on Friday nights, and you know, one of them was even a you know, beat Rays team to win a bonus prize sort of thing, and I was sort of the face of it. So that kind of got me into it a little bit, and I, and I played it. You know, even after the promotion ended a little bit last summer. But you know, given the growth of the industry and the fact that you know. We'll get into this a little later, I think, but we're looking at, you know, Baseball HQ trying to, you know, offer some more tools geared toward the daily gamers. I've been playing them more often this year, trying to get a sense of what sort of tools you need and what sort of strategies might work and that sort of thing. So I've been putting a fair amount of research to it, into it in season.
0: Well, when we talk about strategy and tactics for daily games, in, in fact, when we talk about strategy and tactics in general, um, I think there's often a, a misnomer that people call strategy, say strategy when they mean tactics, and then they don't say tactics at all. But to me, what strategy means is you're playing the game, the daily game, if you don't want it to be gambling, you really have to play it regularly and a lot, and your strategy would be your approach looking at it from a holistic level. So do you have a strategy like that for playing in the longer term?
1: Yeah, I, and to me, I, I think you've talked about this with Todd before on your Friday conversations. But to me, a very important and underrated component to the overall strategy is what games you're playing and how you're managing your finances on these sites. So I think bankroll management is a is a big part of it and at a strategic level and. You know that kind of dovetails into the tools conversation and what your you know strategy for picking players is. But you know you can enter contests that have different levels of payouts. You know one with a thousand people that you know pays a big prize to the top you know 50 or 100, or you can play in other events that you know they call them for instance double up leagues where you play with 100 people and the top 50 you all get the same amount of money. Basically take the money from the bottom 50 people, and those are an important event in playing these games in terms of being able to do that bankroll management that I was talking about because if you're playing in deep events where the payouts are restricted to the top 5 or 10 or 15 percent of the entries on a graduated basis you're playing in a format that you know people are very careful to try to not call this gambling but there's a lot of variance in that shall we say and your bankroll is going to swing around wildly you might pick up several hundred dollars one night and then you might not win anything at all for a month. So to me, the other formats like these double up leagues are a way to sort of smooth out that variance and, you know, manage your finances more closely and more conservatively so that you have a more predictable outcome. And that to me is as you start to draw that continuum from, you know, gambling to, not gambling, frankly, well, then that's, you know, to, to a game of skill, then that's, you know, using the events that are available to you is a key component of that, I think.
0: Yeah, when you talk about bankroll management, I know a lot of people who try to defend uh, the daily games as being not gambling. Uh, make a comparison with poker, and poker, of course, there's a very high level of luck involved because you have to get the cards, but you can win with bad cards. And that comes to, again, bankroll management and, and the ability to play the game intelligently. So let's move on to the tactics. Uh, Todd Zola, you mentioned, said on Baseball HQ Radio that when he's making his short-term roster decisions for these one-day games among players of equal value, so you're looking at player A versus player B, both left-handed hitters, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, of of relatively equal worth. He looks at quality of opposition as by far the most important thing ahead of park factors, handedness, all these other considerations. How do you look at that issue and how do you rank such factors as quality of opposition, park factors, and so on?
1: I don't think I'd put it exactly the same way as Todd, but I, I don't think we really disagree either. To me, I think quality of opposition is a good first check and I think it's something I would look at as a potential disqualifier for a player. You know, similar to, you know, the philosophy you would use in our season long games of you know, when you're playing matchups, especially with your pitchers, where you might say something like, you know, never bench your aces, never bench your top players. You know, I will check opposition for extremely high quality. I don't care who a pitcher who who the hitter is. If I have two relatively equal hitters like you describe and one of them is facing Felix Hernandez today, I'm not playing that guy. But, you know, after you get past the, you know, Very top level of opposition quality, then to me, those other factors start to become just as important pretty quickly. And I sort of think of them as a matrix where I'm trying to check as many boxes as I can among does this guy have the platoon advantage? Is he in a favorable environment for park factors, you know, and not just generic park factors, but specific to, you know, the side of the plate he buys, he hits from, et cetera. Uh, You know, and then what's the quality of the opposition? Those sorts of things. I want to be able to check as many of those boxes as I can. And the, you know, the quality of opposition one is sort of an initial first screen for a disqualifier. But after you pass that first screen, I think I would just throw it into a box with the other ones and say, I'm looking to, you know, the guys I want to roster are going to hit three out of those four things favorably, something like that.
0: You mentioned that daily play is growing pretty quickly and that BaseballHQ.com is, uh, of course, trying to respond because there's opportunities there to provide service to people that are really interested in these games. So right now, what are the best tools you think on the site for people who are playing the daily formats?
1: You know, the to me, it starts and ends with that starting pitcher report tool that you mentioned earlier. And similar to what I was talking about, about you know bankroll management and those double-up formats earlier, you can almost win... Consistently in those double-up formats just by picking the right pitchers. And having a tool that consistently allows you to do that on a daily basis is exactly – is such a huge leg up. I start every day when I'm filling out a lineup card. I pick my pitching first. You know, when I say – I make sure I get pitchers who that report treats favorably for the day, basically regardless of cost. First, I nail down a pitching lineup and say, okay, this is what the pitching – and I want – cost me today and based on that i have this much left to go build an offense and the offense to me is always a variable component and that's going to vary every day even if you follow the matrix i was talking about earlier there are going to be days when the hitters you pick just go five for 30 and you don't get much out of them and there'll be a, uh, hopefully a few other days where they go gangbusters and on top of picking the right pitchers those are the days when you can do very well but having that edge and picking pitchers and picking the right pitchers day over day over day to me is the foundation for success in these formats and the starting pitching a report tool is critical to that.
0: And of course, the daily games don't all play exactly the same way. They award different kinds of points for different kinds of uh, achievements, and there are different uh, rules in use. It's really important that you understand where the value is at a site. Uh, For instance, uh, uh, some of them are more heavily weighted towards getting good pitching results than others. And if you're playing in a league like that, it behooves you to make sure that your pitching is very, very solid.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You have to know your rules. I went through this uh, just the other week. I was, um, I, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've done most of my playing over on Draft Street, just because that was the outfit that Baseball HQ had a promotion event with last year. So I had sort of gotten introduced to them first. But uh, the NFBC was doing a promotion with FanDuel, so I went over to just last week to play FanDuel for the first time. And as you say, you, you the formats are quite different. Draft Street, you can pick three pitchers a night, and you can actually use starters or relievers and in FanDuel it's one pitcher is all you get for the night which is a very different sort of you know both economic and tactical thought process than you know trying to conf- compile a portfolio of two or three pitchers it's like i'm putting my eggs all in this one basket for pitching tonight and you Kind of want to make da- darn sure you get that one right.
0: No kidding. Yeah, if you've only got the one guy, boy, that does. But again, that really makes that starting pitcher matchup tool look all the more attractive, especially if you can find a guy, as I often have in using the tool this year, uh, find a guy whose salary is actually pretty low, but his matchup score is pretty high. And you can leverage that uh, by uh, taking that pitcher and then spending the extra money to make a even stronger hitting lineup.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like you mentioned, Ricky Nolasco earlier, he's always cheap because his results haven't been that good this year you could have done very well to build a monster offense around ricky nolasco a couple of those nights where you used him as a pickup in your uh, season long leagues and probably done very well
0: indeed uh, are you planning any additional tools or features aimed at the daily game at BaseballHQ.com?
1: yeah we are and some of them are things we've had on the drawing board for a long time that sort of the daily game is pushing to the top of the priority list a great example of that is uh, platoon data, which is something that we've, you know, long had the desire to get and actually uh just this past off season had acquired uh platoon expanded platoon data so we can display Batting average, on base percentage, slugging, et cetera, and not only those, you know, traditional metrics, but also the skill-based metrics like you know contact rate and batting eye and that sort of thing for hitters, you know, to display all of those things in Player Link for a player. So, you know, that's in our um, development queue right now, and we're working on that. That's going to be a nice add to Player Link sometime, you know, during the summer, and you know, even our full season players have been asking for that for years to help them with their daily and weekly lineup decisions so it's one of those things that makes a lot of sense because it's not something we have to develop expressly for the daily gaming space it's something that's going to help every one of our subscribers so that's what i'm particularly excited about and then the other thing you have to do to really be able to manage, manage data in this daily space is to have access to lineups as they come out so right now i'm shopping around to try to find out how to do that you know there are sites that do that, and I think the you know the primary source for those things these days seems to be Twitter, where a major league beat writer will post the team's lineup card from the clubhouse a couple of hours before the game, and then suddenly you know every site in existence is grabbing that and compiling it and putting it on their website, and you know there's got to be some automation behind doing that because otherwise it's not sustainable. So I'm looking into how to do that for the site now. Those are uh, you know those are a couple of things we're looking at that I think will be enjoyable. For you know, all readers of the site, whether or not they play daily games, I think they're just good things to have around.
0: When you say that, you're talking about the batting orders.
1: Yeah, the lineups before the you know a couple of hours before the games come out, so you know you know where the guy's hitting and you know, that he is in the lineup, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it won't be long before uh, MLB uh, does that directly. I I can't see them not doing it because of the interest in it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, speculator, columnist, and co-general manager. And Ray, one of the main differences between BaseballHQ.com and many other fantasy baseball sites is that Baseball HQ has long had a commitment to in-house fantasy baseball-focused research. Uh, You've had some pretty good examples of research that HQ has published recently, and subscribe subscribers can use that information to get a, a winner's edge.
1: Yeah, for you know, as you say, we've been doing this for a number of years. You know, it's an area we've invested a lot of resources in, and it's an easy decision to make those investments because they consistently bear fruit year over year. You know, you're certainly a big part of this uh, part of the solution there. You did some really good work last month on correlating pitch velocities with outcomes. You know, you talked to Todd every week, and Todd Zola did a nice piece on composite park factors a month or two ago. I know you guys talked about it on the show where he measured not just you know home park factors, but you know, where your road games are within your division and what and the caliber of the places you play a lot and trying to measure 162-game park factor instead of, you know, an 81-game park factor. That was really cool work. And, you know, most recently, just last week, Stephen Nickrand, our crack starting pitcher analyst, did a terrific piece on first pitch strike rates and how they correlate to walk rates which was uh terrific info that you know it was one of those things where as soon as you read his work you're like this is so good we have to be able to roll this data out all over the site it's just that important from the instant you read it
0: yeah that last one is interesting now you mentioned that first pitch strike percentage correlates pretty strongly with the uh with walk rate and what else did steven uh, come up with in that research report it was really interesting
1: yeah so it's sort of a an extension or a part two of the work he did last year on swinging strike rates, where where he found last year that swinging strike rates are a nice check on strikeout per nine numbers. And if you see a strikeout per nine number going up or down on a pitcher and you want to sort of know if it's real or not, or if it's just a blip, swinging strike rates are the place to go look to verify that. You might see the guy is, you know, striking out an extra batter per inning, but his swing strike rate hasn't changed. Well, that's a good guess that his strikeout rate is actually going to come, come down over time, that it's just a short-term blip. And essentially, the findings on first-pitch strikes here are Exactly the same as it relates to walks, the way that swing strikes relate to strikeouts. So, as you can imagine, the importance of a first pitch strike and getting ahead in the count is that you're going to walk a lot fewer guys. And those numbers tend to move in tandem. If your first pitch strike rate goes up, you're going to walk fewer guys. And if you want to know if someone's walking fewer guys and if they can keep it going, you go check the first pitch strike rate and see if there's been a a correlated change there. And if there is, you can basically believe in the number. And if there isn't, then you should expect regression
0: or at the very least be cautious so one other thing i liked about uh, steven's finding is that um, the first pitch strike percentage is a persistent stat that is once a pitcher establishes a a level of first pitch strike it tends to stay with him and it it doesn't vary too much which makes it much more useful as a predictive method
1: yes absolutely it's uh you know anytime you have a number that that's that is that stable and you very rarely changes then, you know, it serves as a, as a nice baseline for further analysis. And th- the other thing about it is intuitively it makes sense. You know, there was some discussion in our forums about, you know, whether first pitch strike is just a sort of a result of a chicken and egg game between hitter and pitcher. And, well, if a hitter, if a pitcher knows it's important to get first strikes, well, isn't he just going to keep th- trying to throw them all the time? And won't the hitter know that and swing at the first pitch and, you know, start hitting first pitch home runs? And But the overall point is, you know, once you get through that chicken and egg, you know, head game chess match sort of thing good pitchers aren't just throwing first strikes they're making quality first strikes and that's what makes the numbers sustainable so that's really you know the number is stable the number is predictable and if you think about the batter pitcher matchup in the way I was sort of just recapping it it makes intuitive sense too so when all of those things line up you feel pretty good about the work.
0: Yeah, I mean, the baseball broadcasters have been telling us for years that getting ahead 0-1 is uh, way better than being behind 1-0, and Stephen has certainly backed that up. And I I also think that uh, maybe the next step in this is going to be, is there a difference in the correlative power of the set between first pitch swinging strikes and first pitch looking strikes, and first pitch strikes that are put in play. And uh, I, I think it seems to me that there probably would be. If you're getting ahead by fooling a guy so badly that he's either looking at a pitch that he should have swung at or swinging and missing, that's, one, that's an order of things that's really good. And maybe if you filter out the first pitch strikes that get hit, especially the ones that get hit for base hits, then if you could winkle those out of the out of the equation, all of a sudden you may have even more predictive power. That is from a guy who's getting first pitch strikes that aren't being put in play.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting. It's funny how we both have those you know sort of next step thoughts. My. My personal reaction was, you know, first pitch strikes and the difference between one zero and zero one is important. But there was some pitching coach I you know recently, and I forget who it was. It might have been Mike Maddox who was saying that to him the critical the critical delivery is actually the one one pitch because if you go one zero, you're probably going to come back and get a strike at one one. To, to get to 1 1, and then what happened starts to get really, really important in that 1 1 pitch as far as outcomes. So I almost wanted to see the same study on 1 1 pitches and see what happened. But of course, you know, one of the corollaries there is now you're starting to get a little less data because not every at bat goes to 1 1.
0: Also, I can tell you from having looked through the data from the various places you can find it on the web, sometimes it's hard to find at that level, and, and it's not always clear what they mean when they say a, a 1 1 pitch. Was it a 1 1 pitch that ended the at bat? You know, was it a one-one pitch that you know those kind of issues uh, inevitably pop up another new f- research-based feature that we have at baseballhq.com has been the facts and flukes spotlight where hq writers go into really serious depth on a single player to assess and validate that player's current performance i have one of those on the site right now zach granke of the dodgers and it was a really interesting process where did the idea come from
1: you know, I think it was somewhere at the end of last season where we were sort of doing a post-mortem on, you know, the features on the site and trying to figure out what we wanted to change up for the new year. One of the fa- current Facts and Flukes analysts, I believe it was Jeffrey Tomich, uh, sent a note to us and said, you know, I, I want to keep doing the Facts and Flukes. They're, you know, they're the bread and butter of the site. They're really important. You know, I, I really enjoy doing them. But I got to tell you, every now and then there's a guy who comes along who I could just write about him all day and, you know, this kind of template structure we have of the regular fact and fluke column is you know you present a chart of data and then you highlight three or four bullet points that are important and you draw a conclusion and that's great for most players but there are some guys who I really just want to take a deeper dive and but that would be breaking the template maybe there's an opportunity to you know take some of those deeper dives somewhere along the way and you know your piece on Greinke was great I've written two of them myself uh, one on Adrian Gonzalez and one on Phil Hughes in the last six weeks or so, and I don't know what your experience was, but my overall takeaway from it was these things were just unbelievably fun to write.
0: They were the uh, as I mentioned a moment ago the the worst thing for me was the frustration in trying to find data from various websites and aggregate it because you go to baseball reference, you go to some of the other advanced metric sites, and sometimes the pitch- the pitch numbers aren't quite the same you know one of them has eighteen hundred and sixty nine and one of them has eighteen hundred and ninety five and you you're asking yourself well why is it that the, you know these events took place they were real and yet we're getting two different counts and you know, if the number's high enough, it doesn't really matter that much. But when you get down to where you're talking about how many fastballs on 0-2, you know, now you're down to 100 pitches maybe in a season or, or in a half season, it starts to get a little more problematic when the, when there's a quite a variance in that denominator.
1: Yeah, that's the thing about it is where you're, you're sort of... Uh, there's definitely some data headaches there because you're you're jumping into the you know sort of the uncharted end of the pool I guess the uh, t- to mix a couple of metaphors you know we're you're jumping into the data that has not been you know thoroughly mined and you know, it's one of these areas where you know we're blessed in you know analyzing this game these days that all of this data is out there but you know it hasn't always been completely cross-checked and some of the bleeding edges, you know, people are collecting this data but haven't figured out what to do with it yet. And, you know, in, in your piece with Greinke and, and in mine with uh, Hughes and Gonzalez, you sort of just jump in and, you know, start peeling back that onion and see what's interesting and you always end up with a couple of, you know, rabbit holes that don't lead you anywhere and a couple of other places where you think you see something interesting and then, like you said, you can't quite get at the right data slice to find the, right, to, to find the supporting or dispositive evidence and, still they you know they end up being good pieces and the the readers are you know from the feedback we're getting are really enjoying them and you know from my point of view it was a chance to sort of really you know stretch out the analytical arm in a way that i you know don't get to do on a regular basis in the, in my regular column so I, I sort of appreciated that too
0: and i think that another benefit to the reader because my first thought was why would you want to have a reader look at you know 2,100 words on just Zach Granke, when in 2,100 words he could, you know, we could in a regular fax and flukes do six or seven players. And I think the the, the benefit besides getting the information about Zach Granke for whatever it's worth, is that by reading it, you start getting a real good understanding of the HQ method and how people think about an individual player, which you can use down the road once you realize, hey, I didn't even know that there was this information out there about first pitch strike percentages or about pitch selections that you can get from various uh, sites that are using PitchFX, it's a really interesting process to do, and I and I hope it's interesting to read because it's sure interesting to write. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, you're also Baseball HQ's Speculator Columnist, and I wanted to talk to you about a column you wrote a couple of weeks ago about Buy High Candidates. I love this buy high idea anyways, because every site in the world tells you buy low, sell high, right? But players with, who are having great starts can be worth acquiring because they're going to maintain or improve the performance. So when you look at it in your column, what do you think makes a good buy high player in general?
1: You know, you, you hit on the key point is that, you know, buy low, sell high is this, you know, sort of overused trite concept that I'm, I'm not sure has any real relevance in, You know, in leagues of any maturity and depth. And that's kind of what leads to the idea of turning it all on its ear here. And really what you're looking to do is to prey on that, you know, that trite, overused cliche that, you know, someone gets off to a hot start and you should sell high on them. And if the guy you're talking to who owns the player who's off to the hot start has that notion in the back of his mind or reads somebody making na- naming that player as a sell-high candidate after his hot start in some other website, hey, all the better. I, the, the idea is really to seize on that notion. And you know, in the back of their mind, everybody's heard buy low, sell high so many times that if they have a hot starter, somewhere in the back of their head, the notion of selling high is going to cr- creep into their consciousness. And it's really a chance to prey on that. If you can find the right guys who their hot start is fully supported by skills, or they've always had skills, and now they're getting playing time or now they're healthy or now they're finally on the right team like say phil hughes then sure go make what would appear to be a near full value bid to his owner try to let him think he's locking in the profit by selling on a guy like say phil hughes now and instead you take on phil hughes at something of a discount relative to what he's done so far and you're confident he can keep doing it for the rest of the year, it's an opportunity to bleed a little bit of profit out.
0: Especially if you can swap over somebody who you are selling high. In the column, Ray, you made an interesting point about Michael Brantley of the Indians whom you identified as one of these buy high candidates and that was that his contact rate is over 90% and you said that gives him extra value in the modern game. What did you mean by that?
1: So, We've talked about this before, but the game has changed so much with strikeouts at a modern high and contact being such an elusive skill on a lot of players and batting averages down and all those sorts of corollary effects of the high strikeout era that when you find a guy who has a low strikeout rate, an elite elite contact skill like Brantley, it makes all of his other skills look better. I mean, Brantley, other than the fact that he puts the ball in play a lot, doesn't have an elite skill. He's a guy who has a power index of about 110, 115, about 10% above average. He's got a little bit of speed, you know, but he's not a burner by any means. But those skills play up, essentially, because he puts so many balls in play. He's got a 40%, 42% fly ball rate. That's about league average. But he's going to hit more fly balls because he's hitting more balls, period. So it's 40% fly ball rate off of a higher base number of overall balls in play. So even though the rest of Brantley's skills are average to a tick or two above, they play better because he's putting so many balls in play and having, giving himself so many more chances to exhibit those slightly above average skills.
0: Yeah, I think it's an excellent point. In the most recent Speculator column, you looked at HQ's leading indicators to identify players you might think are worth a gamble. Uh, First of all, what are leading indicators in the HQ lexicon?
1: So the leading indicators in general are you know the skill-based metrics that support you know the on, the on the field performance of the player. You know, you're, we were just talking about contact rate, batting eye, power index. You know, any any individual metric like that you know, we refer to as a leading indicator. The leading indicator reports on the site are sort of you know canned measurements that we use to try to measure players' performances against the leading indicators and identify players who are primed to improve or fade as the season goes on. So the reports do things like, hey, let's look at people who have hit a number of home runs but have a very high ground ball rate. We know that for players who hit a lot of ground balls, it's tough to sustain power. So if you've got somebody who's hit five or ten home runs so far, but is hitting 50% of their balls on the ground, that's someone who you might want to disassociate yourself from because it's not likely he can sustain the power output if the ground ball rate stays where it is. So the leading indicators section of the site is a section of, you know, twenty or so canned reports like that that, you know, take looks at our skill indicators, measure them against performance and categorize them, you know, very broadly into buy, sell, etc.
0: Yeah, basically, it's a mismatch between uh, performance and skills. And it's in those mismatches where you can really often find some terrific opportunities. Uh, One interesting example in the column, Ray, was Luis Valbuena of the Cubs at third baseman. He's had a nice little breakout season this year, not really commented upon too much. And you used those leading indicators to suggest there could be more on the way and better on the way. Why? Why?
1: So the thing about Valbuena, if you look at what he's doing this year, is his batting average is way up, and that's primarily driven by an elevated hit rate, batting average on balls in play. And normally, if you see a player's skills stay fairly constant with a BABIP spike, you say, oh, it's just luck, it's going to regress at some point. But if you go under the covers a little more, Valbuena clearly is hitting the ball with more authority. His hard hit ball rate is way up, his line drive rate is way up, and he's not only is the line drive rate up, but he's turning ground balls into line drives. And sometimes, if you see someone turn fly balls into line drives, that's less interesting because that could be data categorization or that sort of thing. But when you're turning ground balls into line drives, that's not, you know, some judgment call by a scorer. That's a that's a legit skill change. So since the end of April itself, Val Valbuena has been hitting about 300, and it looks like that's sustainable if he keeps up this new approach that seems to be focused on hitting line drives. So, you know, credit to him, 28's not too late for a breakout. It's a pretty interesting skill set.
0: You also say the indicators suggest Austin Jackson of the Tigers, who's been a pretty consistent disappointment to owners the last couple of years anyway, might get to go on another stolen base binge. And stolen bases are interesting as a leading indicator because there's a lot of moving parts here
1: yeah there are a lot of moving parts and some of them have been working against jackson for quite a few years now you know jim leland was not the most aggressive manager when he was in detroit and to be fair there were reasons for that jackson spent a lot of his time up until late last season in the leadoff spot and when you're hitting leadoff, even when you get on base and you've got prince fielder and miguel cabrera coming up behind you well yeah stealing may not be the first thing that occurs to the manager so that's understandable And, you know, late last year and now this year, he's been down toward the bottom of the order. He's been hitting sixth most of the time. And he has six or seven stolen bases on the year, and all of them came before May 15th. And you think about what happened between opening day and and May 15th. And basically what happened was that's the roughly the period when Miguel Cabrera was not right. And when, when Miguel Cabrera was not right and Miguel Cabrera wasn't getting on base and therefore with Jackson buying batting six, Miguel Cabrera was not frequently on first base in front of him. Jackson started running more. And I thought that was interesting. Um, You know, that doesn't mean it's going to happen again because now Cabrera is back to being Cabrera, and Victor Martinez is having a great year too. So frequently, Jackson's coming up with those guys on base, and not coincidentally, those are two of the slowest guys on baseball. And he's not going to be able to run if Cabrera and Jackson, Cabrera and Martinez, are on base in front of him. But if the lineup changes again, maybe it would benefit him to move down even further towards seven or eight and get a little leeway to run. You know, or maybe Cabrera. You know, he left the game the other night with a sore hamstring or something like that. And if Cabrera gets a couple of days off here and there, then, you know, there might be some spots where Jackson finally gets to use that skill again. Because at least early in the season, Brad Osmus was more willing to give, Jack- give uh, Jackson the green light than Leland ever was.
0: Yeah, he'll give uh, anybody the green light more than Leland ever did, that's for sure. Uh, Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, speculator, columnist, and co-general manager of the site. And Ray, as you know, during the season, we always ask our Tuesday Tout experts to talk about their studs and duds for the balance of the year, studs being players that you'd like to acquire, maybe we could call them buy-high players, and duds being players you'd avoid or try to trade off your roster. So let's start with the batters. Who do you think's a stud hitter for the balance of the season? Season in the National League,
1: so one guy in the National League I really like, who was in my uh, leading indicators column this week, was Anthony Rizzo, who really you know has answered some of the questions we had about him last season, and you know he established he had power, but his batting average was barely tolerable. But that looked like it was a bit of a babbit fluke, and so far this year he's proving us right. You know the power is still there, but now he's up around. 275 for a batting average, and his expecting batting average is right there. So to me, Anthony Rizzo has answered all the questions I had about him, and if somebody owns him who remembers that he went south late last year and wants to get out from under him before he does that again, I'd buy into that. I'm, a, I'm on the Anthony Rizzo bandwagon.
0: One thing I like about Anthony Rizzo that I don't know if it gets enough attention is that Theo Epstein's acquired him twice, and if you if you buy that Theo Epstein knows what he's doing, then you've got to like the fact that he likes Anthony Rizzo, enough to have not only traded for him once but a second time as well how about a stud hitter in the american league
1: i'll go with adam Lind, who also appeared in my uh, leading indicators column you know he oddly he appeared on our leading indicator report for top power skills even though he only has three home runs on the year so that caught my attention and you dig into it a little bit further he of course missed a little bit of time on the dl so that's why his home run total is down but he also has something like 12 doubles, a triple, and three homers in just over 100 at-bats. Just a really big, you know, slugging percentage, basically. And, you know, last year he got off to a slow power start as well. I think he had four home runs through May and finished with 25. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that kind of power spike again down the stretch. So I'm on the Adam Wynn bandwagon.
0: And uh, now let's look at some hitter duds. Uh, uh, How about a dud hitter in the National League?
1: Not so much that I told you so, because I don't want to go that far into it, but I was pretty much avoiding Matt Carpenter everywhere back on draft day, and I'm feeling pretty good about that decision now. I don't know if it's a position change. I don't know what's going on with the Cardinals in general, but that's – just, you know, that he's one of those guys who his value depends so much on having that elite batting average because the rest of his skills are pretty average. And that elite batting average isn't there right now. And as a result, the counting stats are suffering. He's not scoring the runs. You know, he's not, not, not a big stolen base guy to begin with. So he's a guy who I didn't like because he didn't have a lot of paths to value and his value would evaporate pretty quickly if the batting average went. And so far, at least the batting average is gone. He might rebound, but I'm just not all that optimistic, mostly because I don't like the way he acc- he accumulates value.
0: And uh, how about a dud hitter in the American League?
1: Oh, I, I hate to do this because I own him in a bunch of places, but uh, maybe I'm too close to it because I've been rotting him all season, but uh, I'm giving up on Carlos Santana. You know, I don't know if the move from catcher to third base is messing with him or if, you know, they're finally moving him around too many places and it's taking a toll on his hitting. Maybe it's just that his skills, especially his walkery, have always said that he's going to be a better hitter than he actually is, but he hasn't really delivered on it. But he's been terrible. The concussion thing is just one more thing he's got to overcome, and I think this might just be, you know, that it were into June without much sign of a rebound. This might just be a lost season for him.
0: So looking at our studs from Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. In the National League, look for Anthony Rizzo and in the American League, Adam Lind for your studs. And for your duds, uh, keep your eyes away from Matt Carpenter in the National and Carlos Santana in the American League. Now let's move to the mound, Ray. How about let's start with a stud pitcher in the National League.
1: I'm going to give you a couple of guys for stud pitchers who have sort of recently come onto the scene in the hopes that maybe they'll be available to some people. Uh, In the National League, it's Jaime Garcia with the Cardinals who missed a bunch of time last year with injury, came to camp supposedly healthy, and then almost immediately in spring training got set back, put on a different timeline. His shoulder wasn't quite right. But he's come back and made a few starts now, and he's quietly looking pretty good. And this is a guy we always liked when he was healthy. I'm not totally convinced he's healthy, but... Hey, if he breaks down again, you just throw him away and get somebody else. But, you know, on the chance that he's healthy and can stay that way, I think he's somebody I'm willing to ride for the next couple of months.
0: Jaime Garcia looked really good shutting down the Toronto Blue Jays, who were a very, very hot team at the time when he took them down uh, just a couple of nights ago. How about a stud pitcher in the American League?
1: Uh, another newcomer, Josh Tomlin, is quietly putting up some ungodly walk-strikeout ratios in five or six starts this year. Uh, Just this past weekend, I was looking around for some pitching depth for my expert league teams. I ended up bidding on and getting Tomlin in both tout wars and labor, and You know, Tomlin's one of those guys who's always been an average pitcher. And, you know, I think he's best known for having a streak of PQS 3s that goes back to, like, roughly the beginning of time. He was just seemed to be incapable of, you know, taking the next step from innings eater to the dominator. But something seems to have happened this year. And his walk-to-strikeout ratio is incredible. He's gone seven or eight starts straight with a PQS 4 or 5. I'm not sure... I can explain it i haven't dug deep enough into it to know if it's a velocity uptick or a pitch type change or something like that but all evidence in 50 or so innings is that this is not the old josh tomlin so i'm i've jumped on this bandwagon a couple of places
0: you know i grabbed josh tomlin in the in the uh, tout mixed league the auction league and i i grabbed him because he had a favorable matchup on the hq Matchups tool, and i thought i'll play him this one matchup and then he's gone because I'll replace him with somebody else. And lo and behold, he had a hell of a game, showed up again the next, uh, the next week on the matchup tool with a couple of starts, both of them above 2.0. I said, well, I'll hang on to him. Now I'm looking uh, at him as though uh, I may uh, sort of tag him as my number two starter in the roster and, and ride him all year. Uh, how about going to the Duds in the senior circuit, the National League, uh, a pitcher you don't want?
1: Dan Heron, somebody who I've got on a couple of teams because I was sort of optimistic about him in the preseason. You know, he finished last year pretty strong in Washington. He signed in L.A. That's supposed to be a good team you know, supposedly he was behind it. He had his back issues behind him, and he looked pretty good in April, but his strikeout rate's really fallen off since then. He's getting hit a little bit harder, and with a guy like Heron, you know, anytime he starts getting hit a little bit harder, I start to worry that the back is acting up again, and that's one of those things you never really get rid of. Heron's not that young. It's not like he can just sort of power through it. You know, it, it might be affecting his velocity or his motion, so I'm a little concerned about Dan Heron. I own him, but I'm, you know, being pretty cautious with how I deploy him right now.
0: And finally, how about a dud pitcher in the American League?
1: More of an enigma. Uh, I've long been a Bud Norris fan, and I actually watched him just shred the Red Sox last night, and probably the best start I've ever seen him uh, seen him throw for the Orioles, but up until last night there was very little sign of anything positive happening there and his strikeout rates were way down to the point we made earlier his swinging strikes were trailing as well it just looked like his stuff wasn't good there were some whispers of some forearm pains you know last time i was on the show in the first week of the season you and i got uh ribbed a little bit on twitter because we uh my AL pitcher to avoid was Matt Moore, and then like two days later, he had Tommy John surgery, and we had put some kind of hex on him. So, you know, I don't know that you know Bud Norris is on that track. He certainly looked very good last night, but before last night, I would have thought he was on that same path where his velocity was gone. He wasn't as sharp. There were some whispers of arm problems, and we. And he, especially this year with the number of injuries we've seen, you sort of had a feeling how that w- how that was going to end. And he anyway, went out last night and threw a gem. So I don't know, but one start isn't enough to convince me. I'm, I've had him in a couple of leagues all year long, but I'm almost always afraid to start him. I, I just don't know what to do with him.
0: He's one of the guys I have in my uh, tout mixed uh, 15 team that uh... – I keep him on my reserve, except when he matches up well. And uh, and of course, he didn't match up well that well against Boston. And uh, uh, so I benched him. And too bad, I missed a pretty good outing. Uh, uh, before I let you go, uh, Ray, I was going to ask you about David Price of the Rays. Uh, we've looked at him and said the skills are completely out of line with the results. But this happened last year as well, just before he went on the DL. If you had to categorize David Price, is he a stud, a guy to try to maybe get on your roster, or a dud to avoid?
1: He's a stud in my book. You know, I know the numbers. The numbers are a little bit off, but it seems like every time he goes out there and gives up four earned runs, it's with one walk and ten strikeouts. And I'll take my chances with that any time. I don't know that you know maybe there's something very subtle in there that's leading to him getting, you know, poor support. You know, it's not like we think of Tampa as having a bad defense or anything like that, but, you know, I don't know what it is. There's, you know, it's been, to your point, it's been going on for a long time now, and Price, you know, seems like he should have climbed into the Kershaw-Verlander-Felix class and isn't quite there yet, but, you know, how ma- the 375 ERA or whatever it is now is, you know, way out of whack with the incredible walk to strikeout numbers that he puts up i'll continue to bet on the walk and strikeout numbers for a while yet the skills are just so good that i just have to feel like the results are eventually going to fall in line it's long overdue if you're if, if some price owner is frustrated i can certainly understand why i have him and i'm seeing it happen too but you know it's just ingrained in me to bet on the skills and the skills are just too good to ignore he's still a stud in my book
0: yeah he is and uh... Grant Balfour aside, one of the big benefits of pitching in Tampa, I think, is that that's a really good bullpen. And Price uh, routinely gets, what, seven innings or so and then uh, turns it over to a pretty good crew. Again, Balfour aside, uh, I really like David Price as somebody that maybe you could pry free from a impatient or an owner who's fed up or something like that. Maybe give that a try. Ray, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, before we let you go, tell our listeners where they can read more, find out more from Ray Murphy.
1: I have the Speculator column almost every weekend at Baseball HQ. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at RayHQ. Uh, I'm also one of the guys who puts out the tweets at the Baseball HQ main account, at Baseball HQ. Uh, you know, hit the Baseball HQ Facebook page and check the Baseball HQ subscriber forums because I'm there You know, 20 hours a day, it seems like sometimes. Just a great community there. Love interacting with the, with the subscribers there. We have a really good time and have some really high-level discussion. Can't recommend it enough.
0: I'll go along with that. Uh, I love the Baseball HQ forums. Um, are, are you still the leader in, in posts?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure I am since uh, Circle 360 was uh, the longtime number two and he uh, took a few years off, which you know, allowed me to pad my post count. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm still number one now, but uh, that's more of a function of having been around for you know, 12 or 13 years at this point than anything.
0: Like one of those guys in big league baseball who accumulates decent-looking scoring stats just by virtue of
1: being on the
0: on the roster for fifteen years.
1: Exactly right. I'm uh, I'm Julio Franco or something like that.
0: Yeah, you could do worse. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. We'll catch up with you again again during the season.
1: Thank you, P.D. Always a pleasure.
0: Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and the Speculator columnist at the site. Next up, our HQ commentary, the Metric Minute, is coming up on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Playing fantasy baseball was about having fun. So have more fun, more often with one-month fantasy games at chandlerpark.com. One-month games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games, with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with one-month fantasy games at chandlerpark.com. This is Ron Chandler, Monthly Fantasy Baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun, more often. Give it a try.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. Stephen Nickran's Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide column looks at base performance value of starters against right-handed and left-handed hitters. An interesting idea, especially if you have the opportunity to platoon your pitchers in your league. Greg Pyron looks at power index underperformers and overperformers in the Batting Buyer's Guide and bullpens columnist Doug Dennis uses some of Baseball HQ's relief pitching analysis tools that you can use yourself, the saves at risk and closer caliber charts, will analyze shaky closer situations in Tampa, Detroit, Colorado, and the Chicago Cubs. Plus, of course, we have all the regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes, performance validation, our buyer's guides, and more fantasy intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentary. The Minor League Minute is taking the week off, so leading off the Metric Minute and telling us about power index for hitters, here's analyst Ryan
2: Bloomfield. This week on the Metric Minute, we take a look at power index, or PX, as it's often referred to on BaseballHQ.com and here on Baseball HQ Radio. A PX is a metric that measures a hitter's extra base abilities compared to the overall league levels for that year. Um, PX has been a staple metric on on BaseballHQ.com for years now as the main underlying uh, power hitting skill when evaluating hitters. Here's a little bit of background on PX. It essentially takes the amount of doubles, triples, and home runs a batter hits, basically all those extra base hits, and wraps that up into a single number that we call linear weighted power. Uh, We take We then take this number and scale it against the league average across baseball. So this means that the average PX is always going to be 100. uh, No matter what season, 100 is the league average power. This makes it pretty easy to quickly tell how a hitter's power skills are holding up against the rest of the league for that season. So your elite power hitters typically have a PX over 150, and your soft hitting batters usually tend to to be below 80 uh, PX. Couple examples on how we can use PX as a as a as a metric or power indicating skill. Um, Jose Abreu, the the rookie sensation out of Cuba, has the highest PX in baseball this year with a 238 uh, PX. He's showing elite power skills, obviously with the home run total, uh, but also his extra base hits as well. Nelson Cruz is another guy. He's leading the majors in home runs with 21. Um, his 216 PX is second behind Abreu this season. A couple other in- interesting examples uh, to note this year. Chris Carter of Houston is, is another one. Has a mammoth uh, 172 PX, really high, but only uh, 10 home runs to show for it so far. So his power skills are in excellent shape. Uh, the home run total is not there for those skills given the, the low contact rate that he has down in the low 60s. Uh, Charlie Blackman is another interesting case out of Colorado. His hot start has resulted in 11 homers, but a 108 PX says his power skills are just slightly above league average. Uh, so Coors Field is certainly helping here a little bit, um, but PX doubts that, he can, that Blackman can keep up the home run pace uh, moving forward. So be sure to look at PX when evaluating your hitters, especially for power. Um, especially to help, you know, validate early season home run surges or fades, and also try and look at uh, variances between the home run total and the power index. Next week, we'll take a look at another newer uh, power metric called expected power index and learn about how to use that when evaluating hitters. But for now, for Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com.
0: Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com and talks about various site metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition for June the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 41 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I hope you found it as interesting as I did, and of course I hope we got it out there early enough for you. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday edition, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist, Ray Murphy. Ray's been on the show many times, and he did a great job again. I also want to thank our commentator from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our metric minute commentator. Rob Gordon was unavailable this week. The Minor League Minute back soon. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a research and analysis article on BaseballHQ.com right now. It's a facts and flukes spotlight going in-depth on Los Angeles Dodgers right-hander Zach Ranke. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Lots of interesting stuff going on there. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Also, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Of course, you can feel free to follow my personal Twitter account. It's at Patrick Davitt. Glad to have you. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes show featuring League Watch news from the National and American Leagues, a regular weekly talk with Todd Zola, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And next Tuesday, we'll be going deep about the draft with BaseballHQ.com minor league analyst Rob Gordon on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
1: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking, and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.